This month, Canadians are heading to the polls. But the snap election in front of us isn't just about casting a ballot. It's about making an informed choice to steer our nation towards long-term success, freedom, and liberty. What do you want Canada to be? Where do you want Canada to go? Are you aware of the direction that we're headed? Today on Return to Reason with Leon Fontaine, the threat of socialism. Today I'm not going to spend time going through each party's platform, but I will present some thoughts that will bring clarity to the situation at hand. Canada is at a crossroads. This election is arguably one of the most important of the last few decades and will have a major impact on the direction that our country goes. I'm here to share information and wisdom as well as my opinion. Hear me clearly. Come election day, the choice is yours. I'd like to take you on a journey through history and challenge you to critically think about the threat certain ideologies pose to our nation and our future. So many people in Canada feel that socialism is an answer. But socialism is a deception. It tries to institutionalize generosity. In theory, it redistributes wealth to the poor and the marginalized. But in practice, it gives people in power an enormous amount of control, the ability to limit freedoms, and discourages fair debate or a robust exchange of ideas. Canada is swiftly moving in this direction. And if we continue down this path, we will find ourselves on the wrong side of history. The need to be informed about this threatening political philosophy is urgent. In the last few months alone, we've seen the hand of socialism grip tighter and tighter. The pillars of liberty, freedom, and opportunity that this country was founded on could quickly crumble and dissolve. Socialism is destructive because it's cloaked under noble ideas like affordable for all and equal benefits. I'm going to say something that is really unpopular, but it needs to be said. Equity for all doesn't mean merely a hand up or a hand out. It means that your ability to rise up and make something of yourself will be stripped away your opportunities limited, your country fractured. As Winston Churchill eloquently put it, socialism is a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is the equal sharing of misery. I care too much about Canada to not speak up and raise awareness as to where we're headed as a country. When we're done here today, I would ask three things of you. One, seriously consider who you're voting for and why. Two, share this show with someone, many people. And three, go out and vote. Left, right, blue, red, what does it all mean anymore? Besides billions spent on campaigning, well, here's an image showing you where some political ideologies fall 
on the spectrum. There are so many nuances based on cultural era, personal values of the particular leader or social structure at the time. But this is a guide. Socialism, it's a term known by many other names as well. It's hard to pin down in a sense because the philosophy can take so many different forms, whatever best suits those in power. Socialists believe in equity, social ownership of economic means, collective wealth, and state-driven approaches to management systems. This philosophy puts the good of all far above the rights of individuals. Personal responsibility is much less valued than the concept of collective responsibility. Ironically, in a blind eye attempt to destroy the class gap, it actually widens. Under socialism, essentially there are only two categories. The super elite, who are in governmental power, and everyone else, the working class. In its extreme, there is no incentive to change the circumstances or to get ahead because of the legal requirements to take a portion of your excess and redistribute it to those with presumably a greater need. The idea of lifting up the little guy sounds so righteous, doesn't it? Unfortunately, when we look back on human history, the theory of socialism and the actual implementation of it have differed greatly. Maximo Alvarez is a successful entrepreneur from the USA who lived through the struggles of socialism when he grew up in Cuba. Cuba is a prime example of how a socialist country can turn into a dictatorship. I've seen ideas like this before. And I am here to tell you, we cannot let them take over our country. I heard the promises of Fidel Castro, and I can never forget all those who grew up around me, who look like me, who suffered and starved and died because they believed those empty promises. They swallowed the communist poison pill. Those false promises spread the wealth, free education, free health care, defund the police, trust the socialist state more than your family and your community. They don't sound radical to my ears. They sound familiar. And Fidel Castro was asked if he was a communist. He said he was a Roman Catholic. He knew he had to hide the truth. So why am I spending this edition of the show talking about socialism and its historical examples? Well, I think it's pertinent that Canadians fully understand where their country is headed if parties who practice this way of governing are given increased power and authority. Terms like socialism, liberalism, and conservatism, and many others are complex. They're often misunderstood or grossly misrepresented by people of influence. This problem is amplified when political leaders on TV address citizens using fear to coerce behavior. Well-written speeches might sound eloquent, but often don't say much at all. 
They do not add clarity to the issues vital to our stability as a country. Instead, they tend to breeze over their own party's shortcomings and inflame the disadvantages of any opposing proposal. Underlying political motives are not always so obvious. They can be subtle, slowly implemented over the course of a decade or more. It is up to you to stay alert and steadfast in a tenacious search for truth and transparency. Those in power should never demean the citizens who voted them in. Elected officials should be public servants chosen by those who exercise their democratic rights. We do not vote people in because we think they are smarter than us. We expect them to seek wise counsel, navigate complex issues, and keep the peace at our borders, not to meddle in our everyday choices or censor what version of facts we receive. We should be able to trust our leaders to make decisions to protect society from oppressive restrictions and uphold the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which, by the way, includes freedom of assembly and freedom to travel within our own country. American Senator Daniel Webster penned this observation in the early 19th century. Good intentions will always be pleaded for every assumption of authority. The Constitution was made to guard the people against the dangers of good intentions. There are men of all ages who mean to govern well, but they mean to govern. They promise to be good masters, but they mean to be masters. Here's the thing about living in a democracy. In order for it to be truly reflective of the will of the people, citizens must get out and vote. If you don't, you'll be led by a potentially small group who did vote. We must learn how policy and legislation really impacts the country. We have to appreciate and use all the tools of democracy. Checks and balances have been put in place, but it's only when citizens engage in the process that we can keep parties accountable. Sometimes this goes beyond just voting. Lawsuits, peaceful protests, and lobbying have gone a long way to create the fundamental freedoms that we value. In 2019, voter turnout was around 67%. That was before a global pandemic made most people question simple things like standing in line or using a shared marker. When you make a choice not to participate in democracy, you are essentially governed by those who do. So if I compel you to do anything today, get out and vote. Get all the pertinent information. Do not merely look for things that confirm your current opinion. Perhaps it's time to put the government in a position where they are obligated to restructure and regroup, forced to be accountable, compelled to plot a new course, and maneuver this nation back to what we were founded on, freedom. On your quest to decipher political motives and long-term goals of any particular party, Hear this expert's research on calculated vote-splitting strategies. What happens is they put out all this emotional message, all these emotional words, 
And these emotional words tend to trigger people into four different groups. They're loving loyalists. They seduce by saying, you're wonderful, you and I want the same thing, we know and believe in all of that. It's really calculated because most of these politicians shift all over politically to see what works to get them power. So they say to the loving loyalists what the loving loyalists want to hear. And so the loving loyalists just go, we love this person, and then they change their politics. It's all right, we're already in love. So that's maybe 30% of people. Then, on the other side of that, they trigger the riled up resistors. And the riled up resistors are emotionally hooked and they're angry. They don't like this person. They see this person as very dangerous and a threat to society. And we've got to do something about this person. But they're emotionally engaged as well. Then there's the mild moderates. And to some extent, they're kind of stuck. They don't know, well, is this different or is this politics? So if they're on our side politically, we'll support them, but we don't like the personality. Then the fourth group is the disenchanted dropouts. And these folks feel emotionally uh, pushed away. It's like, just leave me out of this. I'm not political. I don't want to be involved. And in all the countries where we see high-conflict politicians rising to leadership, there's a huge percent of people that emotionally drop out. Isn't it interesting that a lot of socialists who rally for change claim that society is basically incapable of progress or transformation on our own, touting government intervention is the only way? And why is a fear tactic even necessary if these policies are so strong? Using a fear mechanism is the easiest, cheapest way to buy votes. Plain and simple, history proves that compassionate people in a free market economy can do much more to contribute to a country's wealth and decrease poverty in the long run than force equity. I want to emphasize today that you do not have to be corralled to the polls by way of coercion or fear. You can choose to make a choice for freedom with your ballot. As the saying goes, fear is a reaction, courage is a decision. Several free-thinking, research-minded academics have said there are many reasons to be optimistic about the future, especially when comparing factual data and an accurate historical past, rather than some hypothetical ideal of what should be. Every generation needs to be uh, explicitly educated in why uh, the economy that we have today, which is so different from what our ancestors have experienced, is actually good for us. Free trade is a very good example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, free trade contributes to economic growth, and yet uh, um, every generation you have a new push for protectionism. Again, the complexity of the economy has outpaced our ability to understand it without explicit learning. Take a close look at this. Jonathan Haidt, the noted New York University psychologist, calls it the most important graph in the world. Why does he say that? Because he knows this graph reveals a simple, inescapable fact. There is no substitute for free market capitalism as a promoter of human prosperity. Let it be noted that Haidt is no one's idea of a conservative. But when hard evidence stares him in the face, he's not going to look away. 
The graph is based on the research conducted by the late British economist Angus Madison. The numbers along the x-axis are years, 2,000 of them. The number on the y-axis are dollars, all of them, divided by the number of people on the planet. It's what's called GDP per capita, which is the world's economic output divided by its population. GDP is considered the best measurement of a country's standard of living, and in this case, the world's standard of living. People who think capitalism is evil, I, I highly recommend that they visit Cuba, <laughs> they visit Venezuela, they visit North Korea and countries which have, which have taken deliberately uh, a step in the opposite direction. Um, yeah. Capitalism has its problems, uh, liberal democracy has its problems, and it is our task to try to fix these problems on the margins. Mm -hmm. Capitalism turned the United States from 13 backwoods colonies into the world's largest economy, and it's held that position ever since. Western Europe shot up as well, but later. It rose steadily during the Industrial Revolution and then experienced a sharp rise after World War II when, between the end of the war and the mid-1960s, it fully embraced the free market. Japan too shot up after World War II, surpassing Western Europe for the first time, after the U.S. helped the Japanese transition to a democracy and a free market capitalist economy. Eastern Europe took off after it was released from the Soviet Union and Socialism in 1991. China did likewise after the Chinese moved away from strict socialism and implemented some limited free market policies. If we combine the Angus Madison hockey stick chart and the World Bank data on extreme poverty, what we get is something quite amazing. Unprecedented global prosperity and an unprecedented decline in poverty across the globe over the past 200 years. That's capitalism in a nutshell. The remarkable thing about human progress and humanity as a whole is, is that it is quite robust. At the end of the 20th century, life expectancy was still longer than what it was at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. We were still consuming more calories, more people went to school, and so on and so forth, in spite of the 20th century being actually quite violent. Yeah. Anyhow, since the, since the end of the Second World War, the uh, uh, world has gotten progressively more peaceful. So as a world, we are not on the brink of disaster. In Canada, we can do this. We need government leaders that are willing to see the good in people and give them back their right to be the change they want to see in the world. You cannot legislate and regulate human value or the price for freedom and peace. Again, history has taught us that. Heading in a socialist direction where big government reaches into every corner of your life and choices, including the sovereignty over your own body, doesn't sound like a Canada I want to leave for future generations. So how are freedoms slowly eroded over time? How could this even happen in the age where everyone has access to millions of pages of information at the touch of a button? Well, the smart political move is to do it so gradually that people become desensitized to the loss and chalk it up to progress. Another point often used is that of crises management. We have to do this in order to navigate our way out of the crisis. We know all too well that these laws are rarely, if ever, repealed. How quickly we can forget what life used to be like even two or three years ago. Some politicians hope you just blindly go with the flow. 
Wouldn't you rather be given the choice to run your business in a way that honors health and safety, but you're not forced to close your doors? Is there any doubt that the big brother knows best approach to the pandemic is an indicator of where things are headed if something doesn't drastically change? Have you noticed how trending ideologies do not need to be quantified or substantiated, but traditional approaches can be criticized and mocked at any cost? It's lopsided. It relies on feelings over facts. It's a deliberate form of splitting national interest and values. It's downright divisive. It does not empower those who are marginalized and boost them into opportunity as it claims to. Rather, it holds everyone down in a weakly veiled attempt to level the playing field. It's self-serving for those in positions of elite power. You've got some political people that are onto this identity politics, and this is considered to be quite clever this day, where, where you identify some group by a, a distinguishing personal characteristic, their gender, their sexual orientation, their ethnicity, something like that. You promise them certain entitlements or benefits or recognition of their rights or something, or redressing of some injustice they've been subjected to. You then, if you're an identity politics politician, you then tell them our group will offer you these rights or benefits or this privilege. Yeah. If you ever vote for the other guys, they'll probably take it away. And then the last thing is that if anybody criticizes that approach, then you're prejudiced against that group, not against yeah. the politics. What I would like to see is uh, political people who appeal to voters on the basis of what do we have in common? N not what distinguishes you from me, but what do we have in common? We're all human beings. We're all Canadians. We all want certain things. Let me be clear. You don't have to agree with any particular politician, past or present, to understand that the practice of identity politics is so divisive and isn't in the best interest of Canadians in the long run. Personally, I think every human has inherent value and potential. You have the right to make your own choices, and the color of your skin or what pronoun you use tells me nothing about your character. With your actions and words, show me you have honor, integrity, and want what's best for society. Show me you can sacrifice love and cooperate towards a common goal. That's what makes Canada strong. Socialism does not make us strong. It weakens us. It creates alienation. It breeds infighting amongst the citizens and allows the elite persuasive leaders to go unchecked and operating in their personal best interests rather than for the good of the country. Philosopher and writer Anne Rand made this keen observation after immigrating from Russia to America in 1926. Capitalism has been called a system of greed, yet it is the system that raised the standard of living of its poorest citizens to heights no collectivist system has ever begun to equal and no tribal gang can conceive of. The tagline for the 2012 book Freedom Manifesto reads, Why Free Markets Are Moral and Big Government Isn't. In one chapter, Steve Forbes illustrates a pitfall of socialism like this. 
Aren't people better off developing their talents and learning how to help themselves rather than being trapped in dependency on government? Whoa, did you catch that? An unhealthy form of dependency on government. That can summarize the move towards socialism. Capitalism. That's another one of those misused and misunderstood terms. Capitalism refers to an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than by the state. Can capitalism be misused and exploited? Of course. Unfortunately, all systems are corruptible. But capitalism's driving force is personal interest. Simply put, there is motivation to work hard, grow your business, and negotiate partnerships in the private sector. History of the first world has taught us that compassionate capitalism works. Is it perfect? No. But it does create an environment where everyone has opportunity both to succeed and to care for those in their community. I want to live in a Canada that values people not one that reveres the systems and structures that wield power. Am I saying do away with everything? Every man for himself? No, certainly not. But I am urging you to look back on the last few years and ask yourself what's changed in this nation and if it's for the better or not. Where do we want to go from here? At the risk of repeating myself, go out and vote. Anthropologist and outspoken cultural researcher Margaret Mead reminded readers of this in mid-20th century. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, concerned citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. For now, we still live in a democracy. This month, do not miss your chance to let your voice be heard. Silence isn't golden, it's yellow. Don't bury your head in the sand. Be courageous. Engage in the process so we can steer the ship in the right direction. If Canada continues on this course, we all suffer. I urge you to really think about the state of the nation and the country that your grandkids will have to be forced to live with not to mention the burden of suffocating national debt and economy in handcuffs. I would love to imagine a future where Canadian voter turnout is 99%, where we head to the polls and there are several great choices of strong, wise leaders. Sounds like a lofty goal, doesn't it? Getting to a bright, free future simply will not happen if we do not stand up and do something. Feel a sense of responsibility for our nation. Care about the enormous, growing deficit. Be mindful of the global affairs that need our attention. Be wary of extreme leftist philosophies that are disguised under phrases like, we're going to be here for you. Value unity and peace. Treasure your freedom. This is your Canada. Do not let socialism threaten our future. Let's all return to reason. When you hear a government talk about creating jobs, ask what they mean. Do they mean creating government jobs, in which case run for the hills, or do they mean we're going to get out of the way, in which case that might work.
All of which is to say, if you're sitting around waiting for a government to solve your poverty or to make you rich, you are barking up the wrong tree. They are not on your side.